God's word says that God created mankind in his image. In his own image, he created us. Male and female, God created us. Now, God is not a male nor a female. We use a masculine pronoun to refer to God, but he is not a man nor a woman. The Bible says we were created in his image, male and female. In other words, to truly grasp who God is, you cannot look just at men and you cannot look just at women. That somehow in male and female, we see a fullness of who God is. In other words, that if we watch how God interacts with men only, we only have part of the picture. There's something about how God interacts with women that reveals something about who he is that cannot be seen any other way. Now normally or often when I stand up here to preach or Tom or whoever else happens to be up here, when we present God's word, it's normally speaking to all of us as humans, male and female. We don't often make lots of distinctions between things that may be for men or things that may be for women. But occasionally there are times to emphasize one gender over another and what God might be saying to men or what God might be saying to women. This morning is one of those cases. The text that we have before us identifies five named women. And because the text is so startling in identifying these women, what we want to do this morning is take the opportunity to see perhaps something new about God as we watch him engage with women. Now, of course, my prayer and hope is, is that this sermon speaks to all of our hearts, male and female. But because the text is emphasizing females this morning, we have the opportunity to learn something, see something about God that couldn't be seen if we only watched him interact with men. And so this morning we are speaking especially to the women in the congregation who through faith in Jesus are daughters of our Heavenly Father. So please take a Bible and turn to Joshua chapter 17. Joshua 17, it's page 182 in the Bibles the church provides. And so if you take one of these church Bibles from under your seat or in the rack in front of you and turn to page 182, you'll be in Joshua 17. Joshua 17, where we are as we're going through the book of Joshua is that we are following Israel as the land is allotted to them. The first half of the book of Joshua is about the conquest of the land God promised to Abraham and his descendants. 
the second half of the book of Joshua, the part that we're in, the stuff that's not such exciting reading, is the allotment of the land to particular tribes of Israel. Now, I say it's not very exciting reading. It's not very exciting reading until the Spirit begins to speak through it. And then we fall down and rejoice because this is the Word of God. And by faith, we've come to Joshua 17 this morning, and we're asking God to reveal something about who He is through His Word. We pick up the context in verse 1. This was the allotment for the tribe of Manasseh as Joseph's firstborn. That is, for Machir, Manasseh's firstborn. Machir was the ancestor of the Gileadites who had received Gilead and Bashan because the Machirites were great soldiers. So this allotment was for the rest of the people of Manasseh. The clans of Abiziar, Helic, Ashriel, Shechem, Hephir, and Shemida. These are the other male descendants of Manasseh, son of Joseph, by their clans. Now let me explain this background and what's going on here. Jacob, who is Abraham's grandson, has 12 biological sons. We're given their names in the book of Genesis. Reuben, Simeon, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Levi, Gad, Asher, Dan, Naphtali, Benjamin, and Joseph. Those are his 12 biological sons. This man, Jacob, who is Abraham's grandson, has his name changed by God to Israel. And when we think about the 12 tribes of Israel, they are connected to the 12 biological sons. They're not identical because Levi, one of Jacob's biological sons, is not given any inheritance of land because that's the priestly tribe. That's the tribe we are connected to for the most part. They are given God as their inheritance. Joseph, who is one of Jacob's biological children, he is not, his descendants are not allotted land in his name. Instead, it's in his two sons' names, Ephraim and Manasseh. So the 12 tribes that receive land is not identical to the 12 biological children, but very close. Levi and Joseph don't get land. Ephraim and Manasseh get land in Joseph's place, so we still have 12. Manasseh is the tribe that we're talking about here. Technically, Manasseh is Jacob's grandson, but they receive a tribal allotment. Now, if you also remember, two and a half of these 12 tribes, Reuben, Gad, and half of the tribe of Manasseh received their inheritance on the east side of the Jordan. That's what our passage was referring to. Gilead and Bashan are on the east side of the Jordan. Here now in Joshua 17, the other half of the tribe of Manasseh needs to get their land. That's what's going on here. Now, we're told that Manasseh had many sons or descendants. Machir got land on the east side. There were male descendants who will now be getting land on the west side of the Jordan. At this point, everything is proceeding in accordance with how we would expect it to be going. 
Manasseh has descendants. We're looking for the male descendants of Manasseh. However, something very shocking is about to happen in the next few verses. Look at them with me. Verse 3. Now Zelophehad, son of Hefer, the son of Gilead, the son of Machir, the son of Manasseh, had no sons but only daughters, whose names were Mala, Noah, Hagla, Milcah, and Tirzah. They went to Eleazar the priest, Joshua son of Nun, and the leaders and said, The Lord commanded Moses to give us an inheritance among our relatives. So Joshua gave them an inheritance along with the brothers of their father, according to the Lord's command. Manasseh's share consisted of ten tracts of land besides Gilead and Bashan east of the Jordan because the daughters of the tribe of Manasseh received an inheritance among the sons. Now this is very surprising. Today it's not very surprising to think about women inheriting land. But at the time in which this happened and the time in which it was written, it's unheard of. Women were not supposed to, from the culture, inherit land. This is very noteworthy. And so here we are meeting these five named women in the book of Joshua, which is itself interesting. Up until this point, the book of Joshua, for the most part, if you were going to pick a gender, and you don't really have to, but if you were going to pick a gender, the default gender has tended to be male. Unlike, say, the book of Ruth, where it tends to be female, the, adult, the default gender here, we've got kings, we've got priests, we've got commanders, we've got heads of families, we've got clans. It's a book about war, and it's a book about the allotment of land. And in as far as gender is acknowledged at all in the book of Joshua, it tends to be the masculine gender. Now, named females are not absent from the book of Joshua. Rahab is, of course... I think the second most important character in the book of Joshua after Joshua himself. But here we meet not only women who inherit land, but five named women in the book of Joshua. And this is an opportunity to see how God interacts with women. Because it's interesting that although this is completely different than what the culture around them would have done, these five women are claiming that it's at God's command that they're inheriting this land. What are they talking about? Well, we have to go back to the original story to hear what that means. So take your Bible and turn back to Numbers chapter 27. Numbers 27, it's page 131 in the church Bibles. Numbers 27, and you're turning pages from left to right, which means that we're going back in time. And we're going back in time to before Israel enters the land, to before Joshua is in charge, back in time to when Moses is still alive. Moses is in charge, and the children of Israel have come out of Egypt, but have not yet gone into the land. And we pick up the story, Numbers chapter 27, verse 1. 
The daughters of Zelophehad, son of Hefer, son of Gilead, son of Machir, son of Manasseh, belong to the clans of Manasseh, son of Joseph. The names of the daughters were Mala, Noah, Hogla, Milcah, and Tirzah. They came forward and stood before Moses, Eleazar the priest, the leaders, and the whole assembly at the entrance to the tent of meeting and said, Our father died in the wilderness. He was not among Korah's followers who banded together against the Lord, but he died for his own sin and left no sons. Why should our father's name disappear from his clan because he had no son? Give us property among our father's relatives. Now, like I said, in the surrounding culture, this would have been unheard of. So Moses being presented with this request, not sure what to do with it. So verse 6, 5, Moses brought their case before the Lord. And the Lord said to him, what Zephalahad's daughters are saying is right. You must certainly, must certainly give them property as an inheritance among their, among their father's relatives and give their father's inheritance to them. Now in this story, it is God who gives to these women this land. And this gives us the opportunity to make four observations about how God interacts with his daughters, about how God interacts with women. Now, of course, my hope and prayer is that for the males in the congregation, that we still will learn something about God and be blessed but this is specifically for the women in the congregation to be able to understand four things about God and his interaction with you. First, God is passionately concerned about the unique challenges of being a woman in this world. God is passionately concerned about the unique challenges of being a woman in this world. I said it before. This was not the culturally expected thing to have happen. Today, women inheriting land, that seems normal and natural. At this point, this is unheard of. The peoples around them do not treat women this way. That's why Moses doesn't know what to do. He doesn't say, well, let's look around at what some of the other peoples around us are doing. He goes to the Lord and says, Lord, what are we supposed to do here? And what we find is, is that God is concerned about these women. That he sees their situation. He understands the difficulty that they are in. And so he says, this is the right thing to do. And you must certainly give them this land. To do otherwise would be sin. Now we say, well, if God's so passionate about these women, why doesn't he use his God powers and change the culture so that women could inherit land? Wouldn't that show how passionate God is for women? It's possible Here's why I don't personally think he did that. Human culture 
is the result of choices that humans make. Those choices are often sinful and wrong. And God's normal pattern is not to step in and stop us from sinning, but instead in the midst of our sins and the consequences of our sins, God chooses instead to step into those situations with mercy and with grace and with compassion. That's why we could ask the question at the time of Hannah, when women were drawing their self-esteem too much so from their ability to give birth, why didn't God just simply change the culture so that Hannah didn't have to exist in a world where her whole value from other people was seen in whether she could give birth or not? I think the better way to look at it is that God saw Hannah in the midst of a culture which was not the way he designed it to be, which was the result of sinful choices, many of those by masculine humans. God still saw Hannah in the midst of that very difficult cultural situation and met her and didn't say to her, Hannah, you shouldn't get your esteem from whether you have children or not. He met her in the midst of that culture and blessed her. Because he's concerned for the fact that she has a unique challenge in the culture in which she lived. Same is true for Ruth and Naomi. Of course, God could have simply changed culture so that at the time of Ruth and Naomi, being a widow wasn't such a difficult or a a hard thing to do. He didn't do that. Instead... He met Ruth and Naomi in the midst of a situation that valued them only for their marriages and again through the children they could give birth and chose to meet them in the middle of that, gave to Ruth a husband and a son and through that husband and son provided blessings for Ruth and her mother-in-law, Naomi. The same is true today. We could sit back and ask the question, Why doesn't God eliminate the cultural things in the Muslim world, for example, which cause such oppression and difficulty for women living in that environment? We could ask closer to home. Why doesn't God eliminate the culture of pornography here in our own country, which tends to objectify women and put inordinate amount of pressure sexually on women? This is not the way God wants culture to work. This is not the way he wants women to have to experience interactions with men. Why doesn't God change the culture in which we live so that women stop being punished for being moms and instead are rewarded by the surrounding culture? Why doesn't God change the culture in which we live so that women are no longer valued simply for the tasks that you can do? but instead for the beauty of the spirit that God gives you. We could sit here and ask all of those questions, but the point I think this passage is making, there is no culture that is the way God wants it to be. That Yes, we may not be like this culture, but there are things about our culture that are extremely difficult for women to live in today. And the point is, please don't believe the lie of Satan. That because culture is the way that it is, that God must not care about you. 
God is passionately concerned about you as women. And he understands there are unique challenges, even in as, quote unquote, as an enlightened culture in which we live in today, there are still unique challenges that go with being a woman in the world today. And what you need to know is that God has his eyes firmly fixed on you. He sees you. He loves you. Now listen very carefully to the point I'm making because I didn't say the church is passionately concerned about the unique challenges of being a woman in the world today. Thanks be to God, there are times in which the church is concerned, but there are also times in which the church looks more like the society. But that's not the point here. The point is not the successes or the failures of the church. The point is is that God is always concerned about what it means to be a woman in the culture today. And that God is always passionately interested. He sees you where you are. He knows that things are difficult. That there are things in our culture as there are in every culture many of which the result of sinful choices by men, but also women too, that have created a culture that makes it difficult for women. And the first point is you need to know that your heavenly father is passionately concerned about the difficulties or unique challenges of being a woman in this culture today. Second observation. And here again, I'm speaking directly to women, men too, but directly to women. Women, your spiritual inheritance is not determined by your earthly father's sins, but by your heavenly father's grace. Your spiritual inheritance is not determined by your earthly father's sins, but by your heavenly father's grace. And by earthly father, I mean your mother, or your uncle, or but your earthly father. In this passage, verse 3, these five daughters are willing to acknowledge that their father sinned against the Lord. Now, he didn't participate in Korah's rebellion. That would have been the worst thing. But he was part of the generation that said to God, no, we are not going into the promised land. No, we don't think you can actually pull this off. Because of that, these women say, he died for his own sins and left no sons. The implication is, if Zelvahad had been like Caleb or Joshua and had believed God, He would not have died in the wilderness for the rebellion that he participated in. And he would have stayed alive, which would have given him the chance to have sons. And if he had sons, those sons would have inherited land. And these daughters would have been just fine because they would have been provided for from the land that their brother or brothers would have inherited. As a result, their father's sin is threatening to cut them off from the inheritance that they need. These are not married women, by the way. They're all five single. 
They have no recourse, no access to land because they've got no brothers, in part because of their father's sin. But here's the great news. These women end up with land. They get an inheritance, which means their inheritance is not determined by the sins of their earthly father. It's determined by the grace of God. They end up with land not because their father got his act together. They end up with land because their heavenly father sees them and loves them and knows that they need help. The same is true today. Women. In many cases, the sins of your earthly father, and you understand by that, I mean, it could be your mother, it could be uncles, it could be whomever. The sins of your earthly father often threaten to separate you from the spiritual inheritance that God has for you. Whether those sins are workaholism or alcoholism or neglect or abuse or pride or impatience or harshness or a failure to trust God, whatever it may be, the sins of earthly fathers do create a barrier which separate us from the spiritual inheritance God wants for us. Listen, ladies, what God wants for you is to give you eternal life. He wants to give you meaningful relationships with other people. He wants you to experience fulfilling work. He wants you to have the opportunity to be part of a ministry that makes a difference for eternity. He wants you to be able to experience joy. What He wants for you is peace, for you not to be filled with anxiety and fear and dread, but it is often the case that the sins of your earthly father cut you off from those sort of spiritual blessings. But I have good news for you. Your spiritual inheritance is not determined by the sins of your father. It's determined by the grace of your heavenly father. Which leads to the third point. What matters is faith, not gender, for experiencing the blessings of God. What matters is faith, not gender, for experiencing the blessings of God. Remember, we said in Numbers 27 that we were turning back in time to before any of the land is conquered. Do you realize that these five daughters are asking for their inheritance before any of the land has been conquered? Do you know what that means? They're asking in faith. They're doing what their dad didn't do. Their dad heard the same promises they heard. Their dad said, no way he can give us that land. These five daughters make a different choice. They choose to believe that this God who brought them out of Egypt has the power to give them that land and by faith they show up and say we're ready for our allotment mm -hmm. now the other 12 tribes they haven't even started asking yet here come these women Amen. who say i know in the future land is coming i want some of mine <laughs> do you see the faith here do you see the faith and the blessing that this is God is neither male nor female. He does not play favorites. He does not favor those who are men 
or those who are women. What pleases God is faith. Apart from faith, it's impossible to please God. These women, it doesn't matter if they're men or women. They come with faith and they receive the spiritual blessings of God. The same is true for you, ladies, today. What God has for you, eternal life fulfilling relationships, meaningful work, the opportunity to see the joy of pouring into children or friends, being part of a ministry that matters, having the opportunity to experience peace and joy and love, freedom from anxiety. These are the promises that your Heavenly Father has for you, and they are all, all of them, available by faith. When you believe that this is the land He's given to you, then you receive it. It doesn't matter what your gender is. Faith is what matters. Now I give my sermons every week to my wife to read before I preach them. She has a gift of discernment, this one especially. I thought, well, I would like to have your feedback and the help from the Spirit through you before I preach this sermon. And when she read this sermon, she gave me a couple of verses out of Psalm 68 that really struck her. They struck me. I hope they strike you too. The Lord announces the word... And the what? The women who proclaim it are a mighty throng. Kings and armies, which are usually made up of men, flee in haste. The women at home divide the plunder. That's making this point. Gender doesn't matter to God. What matters is faith. And when God is looking for somebody to announce that he is a good Lord... Somebody to announce that he is a God whose unfailing love blesses us each and every day. The men don't have the faith. The women do. And so God chooses a throng of women to announce his goodness. And while the men are running in the opposite direction, the women are enjoying the plunder that comes from trusting in God. The point is what matters is faith, not gender, for experiencing the blessings of God. Fourth and final point. Women and men too, but women. God is inviting you to come and ask. To come and ask for these spiritual blessings. Look with me in Numbers 27 verse 8. This is God speaking through Moses, say to the Israelites, if a man dies and leaves no son, give his inheritance to his daughter. If he has no daughter, give his inheritance to his brothers. If he has no brothers, give his inheritance to his father's brothers. If father has no brothers, give his inheritance to the nearest relative in his clan that he may possess it. This is to have the force of law for the Israelites as the Lord commanded Moses. Not only does God see these five women... He says this is the right thing to do and makes it part of the Mosaic law. But that raises a question. Why didn't God write this in the law in the first place? Did he not know that this situation might arise? Was he not able to figure out there might be a case where a man doesn't have any sons and only daughters? Is he sitting here in Numbers 27 thinking... Oh yeah, that's a good question. What should we do when this happens? Do you think that's what God's doing? No. Well, why didn't he write it in the law in the first place? 
because he's inviting these five women to come and ask him for it. What he wants is for these women who have experienced difficulty in the culture not to engage with two stone tablets, but with their living heavenly father. That's why this is happening at the tent of meeting. That's why this is happening in the assembly is so that these five named women can experience the love that their heavenly father has for them as daughters. And what we think is an oversight in the law that has to be corrected is a purposeful omission by God that's an invitation. Come ask. Come and ask. He clearly wants to bless these women. And if it was simply a provision of the law, they would not get this experience. This is illustrated in perhaps an even stronger way. In a story from the life of Jesus, from Matthew chapter 15. I've got it on the screen here for you. It says, leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and is suffering terribly. Jesus did not answer a word. In other words, he's ignoring her. So his disciples came to him and urged him, send her away for she keeps crying out after us. He answers, meaning he turns to her and says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. Woman comes and kneels down before him. Lord, help me, she says. He replied, it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. And if you want to gasp, that's okay. This is an uncomfortable statement. Yes, it is, Lord, she said. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus said to her, woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed at that moment. Now we look at this story and we've got a woman, not only a woman, a Canaanite woman, which ties that story to the book of Joshua because the Canaanites are the people who are being removed from the land in the book of Joshua because of their sin. So we have a woman whose lineage and heritage is that of a people separated from God. That's why it's not surprising that her daughter is demon-possessed. She's begging Jesus for help. And I've got to tell you, the first time I read this story, I'm thinking to myself, look, Jesus, as your publicist, don't do it this way. Like, this just this doesn't have a warm, fuzzy feel to it. What I want Jesus to say is, woman, you've suffered so much. Let me give you whatever you're asking for. That's not what he does. He ignores her. Then, after he starts talking to her, he says what sounds to me like one of the most harsh and offensive statements in the Bible. It's not right to take food and give it to dogs. Now, the reason why you might chafe at this story the way I chafe at this story is because deep in our soul, we know this isn't God's attitude. This isn't God's attitude towards women. What's going on here? Well, Jesus is showing how women are normally treated. They're normally ignored, and when they're not ignored, especially Jewish men tended to look at them as dogs as not being worth the food that came from their table. But question... Does Jesus heal this woman's daughter reluctantly or joyfully? Joyfully, he wants to do it. 
Why all this other stuff about ignoring her? He's giving her an opportunity to express her faith so that he can bless her with spiritual blessings. Jesus loves her. Jesus is passionately concerned about her. There's no way that Jesus is letting this woman out of his sight without healing that daughter. What's he doing with this ignoring? What's he doing with this demonstration of how the culture thought of her? It's an invitation. Come and ask your heavenly father in the midst of a world that ignores you, in the midst of the world that thinks you're not valuable, come ask your father in heaven. What he has for you is beyond anything this culture would ever give you. It's the same story in Numbers 27 and in Joshua 17 with Mala, Noah, Hogla, Milcah, and Tizra. Do you think God is bothered by giving them this land? He is glad to give it to them. Why didn't he write it in the law? Why didn't he change the culture? This is an opportunity for them to come and ask so that their relationship might not be with two stone tablets or with the wider culture, but with the Father in heaven who loves them. And women, the same is true for you today. There are many things about the church. There's many things about the wider culture. There's many things about your experience that feel very difficult or hard. And we can sit back and say, why doesn't God just change everything and make everything work the way that it's supposed to work? He will. But until he does, it's an invitation for you as his daughter. Come ask. Come ask. So at the end, your experience is not with a wonderful church or a perfect culture, but with a heavenly father who loves you and sees you. Listen, it doesn't matter what culture. Korean culture, African culture, American culture, European culture. Every culture in this world has aspects to it which make life more difficult for women. You need to understand that your heavenly father is passionately concerned about the unique challenges you experience in the world in which you live. Not just a long time ago, but today, the challenges today. He is saying to you, your spiritual inheritance will not be determined by the sins of your earthly father, but by the unfailing love of your heavenly father. What matters is not gender. Please do not believe the lie that life would be better if you were a man, that life would be better if you had this or if you had that. What matters is not gender, but faith. And if you, by faith, come ask your heavenly Father to give you spiritual blessings, he will respond with joy. God is neither male nor female. We learn something about God by seeing how he interacts with men. We learn something else about God by seeing how he interacts with women. Let's pray together. Father, I am grateful that you love my sisters. 
Lord, what kind of father would you be if you played favorites and loved one gender more than another? But Lord, I'm glad that for the women who are here who have by faith in Jesus accepted your love, that you see them where they're at. You know the unique circumstances that they're experiencing. God, I'll never understand. I don't know what it's like, uh, God, to go through what they're going through. But Father, through your spirit you do. And I thank you, God, even for the difficulties in the culture today, that these are opportunities for you to show your love and care to your daughters. And Lord, I ask that no woman would walk out of the doors today without knowing that she is dearly and desperately loved. Would you do this for Jesus' sake? Amen.